Welcome back to the Peter Mac Show. The third segment here with Stefan Kinsella. Today is January 9th, 2019, and we're discussing a host of ideas about government and anarchy. And with uh, Stefan's uh, experience as, a, as an attorney and a libertarian, and uh, just to backtrack, you, miss, you mentioned John Hasness uh, a couple of times in The Myth of the Rule of the Law, and that was a, a very eye-opening uh, article for me. And let me just give a couple of quotes he has, or a quote from from that. He says, uh, he, he's referring, this is the, the the article, the title of which was The Myth of the Rule of Law. And he says, quote, like all myths, it is designed to serve an emotive rather than a cognitive function. The purpose of the myth is not to persuade one's reason, but to enlist one's emotion emotions in support of an idea. And this is precisely the case for the myth of the rule of law. Its purpose is to enlist the emotions of the public in support of society's political power structure. And I thought, boy, oh boy, can you imagine, Stefan, if in even late junior, late grade school or high school, uh, people had discussions like this, if a teacher of uh, civics or history would actually talk about these articles, I think kids could handle them. And it would be amazing to get kids to think about these ideas as opposed to just the, what their school did. America's the greatest country in the world because we have these freedoms and we're a democracy and nobody ever questions these ideas. Or if they would read uh, Hans Hoppe's uh, book, the, the um, what was it, uh, Democracy, the God that Failed, uh, what, what profound influence this might have on Americans if we could just have some exposure to these ideas uh, rather than just a radio show or a radio podcast like this? Well, uh, I totally, well, I, I kind of I partly agree because I think that podcasts and things like this are helping spread, spread ideas. Um, but um, yeah, I was actually hostile to has has at first because you know I'm used to hearing that kind of argument in in to excuse or to justify state power, but he was not being a nihilist trying to tear down objective law just to legitimize government power. He was trying to show that the state itself um, is full of lies, right? Has has tried to deceive us all and has a reason to do so. Sure. And I think I, I agree almost completely now with 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 him. Um, um, so I, and as for the future generation and kids like I have a 15 year old boy, he has smart friends. I see a dichotomy in the sense that they are smarter than we were. They are more aware. You can talk to them about things, but they're also more lefty, right? Because they're they're more biased towards global warming and mm-hmm. and multiculturalism and the things that go along with it. Um, so it's it's sort of a uh, it's 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 sort of a, a yin yang thing, right? right. I mean, uh, you can see that there's potential with the youth, but they're also worse in some ways. And I just hope that as they get older, they'll They'll wise up a little bit more, but at least they're being exposed to so much more. They have so much more opportunity to learn things like this. Right. Oh, yeah. The, just the idea of socialism. I mean, uh, that's that's not a bad word anymore. And people think, well, why don't we have socialism? And why isn't it great if we can guarantee everybody health care and food and a good job and a reasonable place to live? What's wrong with that? You know, and then, of course, you can't rebut that in a cliche. It takes time. 
It takes investigation. It takes understanding of economics to to rebut these claims that people have. And so, in, in, in my view, Stefan, we I see you know as you said, your fifteen year old and others are more aware of some of these ideas. So in that sense, liberty is advancing. But in some avenues, it's also retreating. The very fact that something like 40 or 50 percent of college age students see no problem with socialism. That's really scary. Well, uh, yeah, I, I I thought for a while um, after the 1988, 89, 90 revolutions, like after the collapse of socialism in, in Eastern Europe, right? So uh, mm-hmm. Russia, uh, et cetera, uh, East, East Germany. Uh, I thought it was a teaching moment, and I think it was for a while, for a couple of decades, let's mm-hmm. say, for maybe mm-hmm. 20 years. Mm-hmm. People didn't understand the lessons uh, of economic theory that much, but they sort of got the idea that central planning is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But it's now creeping back up again, right? There's like this inexorable logic, um, which which makes me think, to be honest, although like you, I'm an Austrian um, – I mean, I'd say I'm an Austrian economist. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that the public choice economics of Buchanan and these guys, there's something to that that's very important where they, they, they explain why these institutions arise and emerge and persevere. And I'm afraid that with a society of a certain size that there's a logic of socialism that it pushes itself on the people. Um, that's what concerns me, and I see that happening right now, right, with this, uh, you know, uh, 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 occasional cortex. What's her name? The 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 girl in, uh, in oh, New yeah. York. Uh, 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 I can't remember uh, her first name either. Cortez, I think, is her last name, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think of her as occasional cortex. Um, <laughs> but but um, you know, the fact that this kind of simple-minded socialism and Bernie Sanders and free healthcare. And higher minimum wage can appeal, and 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 even Trump's restrictions on free trade laws and things like that, right? Sure. That that can appeal to people when this stuff has been like uh, demolished by just normal free trade economics 150 years ago is a little bit scary. So it shows me that there's a logic to the masses, right? There's a prisoner's dilemma type aspect. There's a public choice economics aspect that leads people to in a large society that have politics. To gravitate towards special interest warfare, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we have identity politics now, right? We, uh, I, I, the goal of the 20th century and the, la- the latter half was to abolish identity politics, to make everyone be universalist and cosmopolitan, and uh, not distinguish people by their race or their cr- or their creed or their sex or their age. And now everyone's devolving back into that, mm-hmm. even more than before, and right. taking pride in it. Right. On a liberal basis, right? Like, uh, oh, uh, I'm a black Samoan American, or whatever the hell. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm in the position where I don't, I, I don't care. I, I'll say whatever I want, whatever I feel. I don't, I don't care that I'm a white American. Whatever. You know, right. I, I can. I, some people can do what they want, but not not everyone has that position, right? They they can, some people can be harmed. Sure. So this this identity politics has become uh, poisonous, but it's the it's it's the revive the reviving. Um, this natural segregation of people into special interest battles or wars against each other, but only because there's politics. Like if there wasn't a a public pie to fight over, we wouldn't wouldn't have to fight over it and to segregate ourselves into these things. So 
you know, of course, the socialists like AOC, they don't understand this, but they're contributing towards racism in a sense. Right. Because they're encouraging people to segregate themselves by groups and to fight for a piece of that little pie. Right. Right. Now, if you've been oppressed any time in the past for your age, sex, religious beliefs, whatever, then, you know, you take a stand and the Democratic Party will support you. And then they then they say, well, we we want to <laughs> we want to deal with the minorities. We want to be the champion of minorities. And of course, Ayn Rand would say, well, the smallest minority is the individual person, and that's what we're about. We're about defending the rights of the individual person to make a living as he pleases, to trade, to do whatever he wants, as long as he or she is not, you know, physically harming somebody else. And you say, what's the problem with that? Well, they don't like that. Then the rich will get ahead and the well-connected will get ahead and so forth. And it's just, it, it, I mean, I would love to have debates with professors in at UNLV where I teach and, you know, just to get them in a position. And, and to me, the, the, the most powerful way of, of combating this stuff is to show inconsistency. Say, okay, you believe in X, Y, and Z, and then keep. let's keep going down. Let's keep looking at the logical implications. Let's follow the syllogism of reasoning all the way down, and let's see if you agree with that. And most of the time, they're going to say, no, 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 I don't want to go that far. Well, wait a minute. Well, which, which is why I believe that the left has resorted the last, what, five, ten years. They resorted increasingly to this shutting down of free speech Mm-hmm. Because they know that their arguments are basically bankrupt, right? And they just don't want to hear uh, the criticism or have to defend themselves. So they, they're shutting down speakers that are alternative, which has given rise to this intellectual dark web and, and the rise of speakers like Jordan Peterson and mm-hmm. even lefties like Sam Harrison and former lefties like Dave Rubin and these guys, right? They they uh, even Bill Maher to some extent a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. They, they've gotten purchased because they're a reaction to this increasing uh, repression of open, open dialogue and open discourse, mm-hmm. right? Which, which they've done, which, which they've imposed because their arguments just don't work in, in, in the end. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that the, liber- the libertarian idea, right? What's the libertarian idea of activism is that the way we achieve our ideal utopian society, the way we achieve liberty is we 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 proselytize people, we persuade them, we mm-hmm. spread ideas. So that's the that's the idea. It's a method. It's a, it's an activism strategy. We we spread ideas. It's like a meme. And we think that if we spread ideas enough we're going to get enough people to agree with us, and then enough of society will agree with us, and we will have uh, implemented somehow, uh, you know, the, the the norms and laws that we want. But that's just, in a way, a step removed from politics, right? It's like going door to door trying to persuade sure. people to vote for this candidate, right? And I don't want to say. I di- I disagree with the idea that ideas matter. I think ideas do matter, but I I think that there is an economic logic behind why people ally like they do in large societies, right? Why they cluster, why they band together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I I I I am not, and we've been trying this for seventy years. Right. I, I don't think that we're going to persuade, we're going to win liberty one day 
by handing out enough pamphlets to our uncles at Thanksgiving dinners. I mean, we're just not going to be annoying enough libertarian assholes at dinner parties that we're going to win. Right. That's not how we achieve liberty. Not that I begrudge these people for trying this. I think if we have liberty, and we have liberty right now to a certain degree. I mean we have a lot of wealth, and that only comes about because we have some liberty. People tolerate some liberty among their fellow peoples. They respect right. their property rights enough for us to have capitalism and to accumulate wealth and to have industry. Right. Um, it's not perfect, but it's enough for us to have amazing wealth. Um, so I think that the only way that we achieve a fuller degree of liberty is if liberty makes sense naturally, like on its own. Right. Like it, it would like it would come about even without any libertarian uh, people passing out pamphlets on the street corner. Right. So if we achieve liberty, which I'm hopeful that we will, it won't be because of people like me and you. I mean, maybe we kept the flame alive. Uh like the remnant of Albert J. Knox idea, the remnant, right? the people that kept the flame alive. But now we have enough people. We have enough ideas. We have the internet. We have enough people to keep the flame alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to be because liberty makes sense naturally and will win over people. So just like the the defeat of communism in the, in the 80s won over people, at least for 20 years, right. I think that increasingly over time, wealth and technology – is going to transform society and will make people gra- – it will make the state gradually obsolete. I mean if everyone is a billionaire because of robots, let's just say, mm-hmm. you don't need the government to give you health care. Right. If you, have, if you have a doctor in your bedroom because there's a robot there who can I – mean, you know, over time, the state's functions will recede. Right. This is my hope. This is my right. utopian hope right. as a utopian libertarian. I think the only hope for liberty is that it's natural and doesn't require activism. Um, so why are we doing it? Just because we're, we want to be on the right side of the Titanic when it's going down, I guess. You know. Well, I I, be- I agree with you insofar as uh, logic doesn't work uh, as a persuasive vehicle with a lot of people, even with the so-called intellectuals that I'm around all the time. It just fails. But let's let's take an example of something. Uh, public education. It's extremely expensive, and it doesn't do a very good job. And that's not very hard to show to a lot of people. But obviously, there's a whole institution, the teachers' unions that hang on to that and so forth. Well, we'll just if you just give us enough money, we'll make it better, and we'll teach the kids to respect each other, and we'll have the utopia they believe in. But to... To respond to what you said, I agree. The way, the the way, at least at least a concomitant way, a way in parallel with talking about that would be to start a school, a private school that's cheap and does a hell of a good job, so that the people that don't even think about the politics of socialized education, which is what it really is, versus private education, just naturally say, "I'm going to send my kid to that school because guess what? It costs me a little bit." But my kid gets such a damn fine education there, and I can talk to the teachers as opposed to this quote-unquote free one over here uh, that's part of the public system. So I, I, I agree to the extent that we have to have both going on. We have to have the right ideas 
but we're going to convince a lot more people if we can demonstrate empirically through things such as a private school compared to a public school that our ideas are better. Yes, and I, uh, but I think that experience is a good teacher for most people. And over time, people people know that private schools are better. Everyone knows this. I mean, this is not rocket science. Uh, and there are empirical studies. And I also think that libertarians, we we we're so passionate about consistency in our case that we right. exaggerate. So, for example, I don't know if it's really true that public schools are extremely ineffective and extremely expensive. I mean they're expensive, but we're rich, and uh, they're not as efficient as they could be, but we're probably way more literate than the Egyptians were you know, a certain term. I mean you, sure. you, you could argue that it's, it's all comparative, right? Sure, sure. And I don't know if people are going to go to the barricades and sacrifice. The problem is the public choice economics logic of things. If the government has property tax and they subsidize schools, then you're going to – I mean we wouldn't oppose – this is my my problem with libertarian sort of my, myop – Myopically? Yeah. They, they look at things in a certain way uh, like you – like if you criticize someone for taking welfare or if you criticize someone for going to a public school, um, I guess you could criticize someone on a personal level individually, ethically, for taking advantage of this. But if you didn't think people would take advantage of these programs, then you wouldn't have a reason to oppose a program in the first place. In other words, the reason we oppose public welfare law and public education law is because we know that once you put these laws in place, people will respond to these incentives. People will feed at the trough. Sure. And and blaming the people that feed at the trough is not Getting at the striking at the root, right? We're not getting at the problem. Sure. Once you have an education system where you're taking people ten thousand bucks a year from someone, and then private education is expensive, they're going to send their kids to public school. A lot of them will just do it, and you can't win the war by exhorting people to not do that. It just won't work. If that would work, then we wouldn't have a problem with the problem with the public system in the first place. Right. So our problem is with the law. But then the question is, why do the laws come about? The laws come about because of democracy and because people can influence the way laws are written. And once you have a large community of disparate and diverse people, everyone's going to want to get their piece of the pie, and they're going to want to fight for it. So the problem really is public law and democracy. And I really don't think the problem is solvable unless you have – I mean – I'm not like some Swedish, you know, uh, alt-right racist kind of guy, but you hear these arguments like, you know, Norway or whatever, they can have a, a welfare system because they're all white and they're all smart and they all right. have the same values and they're a small community and they can they can tolerate a small degree of democratic socialist redistribution as welfare. Okay, maybe that's true. I don't know. I'm, I don't think like that, but that's not the model for humanity in any case, right? Right. And so the, the but the point is that can't be the solution, right? The solution is if you want to have a big cosmopolitan society that's emerging into the 21st and 22nd century someday, right? We we need to be individuals and not be fighting over the pie. And the only way to do that is to somehow crush the idea of democracy and the idea of um, a community that shares things and has a right to have a say so in each other's. 
property. Right. And I don't know if that's possible given the values that people believe now. I don't know if it's possible to do it by persuading people. I think the only way to do it is just by natural secession and natural free market prosperity. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm hoping for. I mean I'm actually kind of optimistic, but my optimistic case depends upon a slightly sci-fi scenario where we all have robot nano swarms of defense mechanisms around us and we can keep the state from taking us and putting us in jail for not paying our taxes mm-hmm. and for doing cocaine and we have our own robot surgeons and you know we all are independent little self-sufficient post-scarcity units mm-hmm. and the state withers away and and that could happen if the government doesn't screw everything up with a nuclear war, which is still a possibility, right? I mean, we were sure. afraid of that in the 70s and the 80s. I think it's it's ridiculous that we've given up that fear. This is a huge fear. I mean, a nuclear war can happen any minute. Well, yeah, the the weapons are distributed among uh, more uh, a greater number of weirdos than there than they were in the days when it was really just the Soviet Union or China. Well, not only that, there there have been recorded incidents where we almost had World War III, like a few times where like the U.S. or the or the USSR like had a mistake and they had a miscommunication or like sure. an accident, and that's just like the ones we missed. Right. So the, the the odds are not in our favor, but if we can, you know, if we can get three hundred a hundred years in the future, three hundred years in the future without a massive disaster, I think we can outrun the state. I, I view the free market as like a stallion, right? It's like a, it's, it's a strong horse, right. and it's got all these little parasite yipping dogs nipping on its skin, mm-hmm. and they can bite it so hard and suck it so much of its blood away that they can make it collapse and die in the desert, and they die with it, maybe. Or maybe the stallion can finally get strong enough and just escape it. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that if you look at the curve of the prosperity of the of the, of the world – in the West, especially in the last 200 years, since 1800 roughly, mm-hmm. um, this it's almost an exponential curve. We're, we're on the curve right now, and, and the curve is changing into a technological curve now. And my hope is that technology will save us. I, I don't want to be a techno-utopian, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there's infinite prosperity horizons available to the human race because of intelligence mm-hmm. and because of knowledge. Um, and this gets back to a, 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 a boring point I've tried to make to many people before, but if you go back to Mises and human action and praxeology, right? Mm-hmm. What does Mises say? He says that human action is what we all do. We're all human actors, and human action is composed of using scarce resources to try to improve what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. But that that action is you can you can boil it down to two two fundamental factors. One is the use or manipulation of resources, and the other is the knowledge that guides your use because you have to have intelligence and choice behind that. And what we have seen – okay, you could say that the scarce resources are, are limited because the earth is limited. You could, say, mm-hmm. you, could, you could say that there's only so much we can exploit, but the knowledge that we have grows every generation. It can be transmitted, which is why – I am so opposed to intellectual property because it slows down the spread of knowledge, right. which is one of the two important ingredients of human action and human success. Right. Right. Knowledge is the most important thing we have, and the more that humanity discovers about scientific laws, engineering techniques, things like this, they spread from, from country to country 
and there's no stopping it. In the beginning, you know, you could slow it down. England, Britain slowed it down at first because they were the first, and they could slow it down with, with laws, but they only slowed it down. Mm-hmm. Eventually, everyone caught on, and they started aping their techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, now everyone knows the assembly line. Everyone knows what semiconductors are made of. Everyone knows everything. Mm-hmm. So things spread. So the point is that the, the fund uh, – I think Hayek – Hayek called a fund of technology or a fund of knowledge, like this fund of experience that we have. It grows with humanity. And that's my hope that over time, this knowledge that we have grows and grows and grows and grows, even if our resources stay static, mm-hmm. physical resources. And so that we can outrun the socialist impulse of the human race, <laughs> right? So that's my mm-hmm. hope. That's my only optimistic hope is that is that is that technology and knowledge can allow us to outrun, and it requires a lot of people. It requires a lot of people. We need seven billion plus more people because you need the geniuses to emerge, right? Sure. You need division of labor. You need ideas to pop up here and there and to spread across the world. So we need lots of people. We need lots of trade. We need lots of communication, which the internet has given us. So. I'm rambling, but I'm optimistic in this weird kind of techno way. But uh, it only is because of natural tendencies, not not because of anything we can do really uh, in a planned way. Mm-hmm. Well, the internet has given us the capability, um, obviously, of spreading ideas, and and we've already talked about the uh, what you and I agree on. Maybe not to the same extent, but there's a limitation on how well you can argue our ideas simply through logic because of people's varying degrees of receptivity to that. And I agree with you. I like the idea of having both the ideas and showing practically, uh, but going back to the example I gave, going practically that a school that you pay for is more likely to respond to your needs and your child's needs than is uh, the public school monopoly and let people see that as opposed to give them the theoretical reason why that should be. And if technology, technology accelerates that phenomena, then, then so be it. That's great. Uh, well, let, 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 me, let me give any, a quick example uh, of which I, I, I'm not pessimistic about the ability to persuade people. That's, that's not exactly my, uh, so, so for example, I think you can, yeah, you can persuade people. I just think there's inherent logic. E- even if you persuade people, even if everyone was a li- every if everyone in the world was libertarian, okay, they still are going to be self interested. Sure. And if society devolves into politics, they're going to know that you know if there's a, a fixed pie of of resources, the government is taxing thirty percent of the national income, and it's got to be distributed somehow. And you're getting taxed to pay for it. Everyone's going to start squabbling for that. Sure. I mean, it's like the prisoner's dilemma issue. Mm-hmm. So the the problem is not the inability of people to learn, although that is part of the problem. I mean, not not everyone is going to be interested in political theory like you and I are. I mean, it, even if, like I said, even if they were, I don't think they're all going to be libertarians in action. Sure. I mean, your grandma, your aunt. They're not all going to just have a passion. They're going to be businessmen, or they're going to be school teachers, or they're going to do A, B, and C. You know, sure. they're going to specialize in different things. So I, I don't want to be too pessimistic about. I think it's great and glorious to spread this, and that's why I think that the this 
people should look up this other thing. I've mentioned two things: Hasnas and um, um, the the uh, the the Kuzan article. The other one would would would. Let me interrupt you. What was that? Yeah, yeah. I got the first name was Alfred. What was the last name? Kuzan, C U Z A N. And he's the one that wrote the article. Do we do we ever really get out of anarchy? Right. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Sorry for the interruption. No, he actually wrote a, a sequel uh, for a JLS uh, about five years ago. Um, no, he's just fascinating stuff. No, I just I, I'm just I'm rambling on now. I'll I'll, 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 I'll peter off now. But um, that's that's kind of my thoughts on the the future of hu- history, uh, humanity and what we should do. Um, and what you should choose as a career in law school. Right. I mean, I love just to get back to the original thing. I loved law school. I just right. want to. And most of my fellow lawyers did not love it. I right. loved it. Most people I know that were engineers didn't love it. I loved engineering. I, I'm just the kind of person that loves school. Right. I don't regret any course. I will say one thing. I don't know if you're like this, but there are courses that I took and that I could have took. That I wouldn't take now because I know they're bullshit and useless. Right. But when I was young, I didn't know what was going to be un- useless. Right. So if I took a course in sociology of the family or whatever, I just was open to everything. Sure. Now I'm more selective. Like if I go to a conference now, I sit out of the courses. I know I'm never going to. I'm not. I'm not going to waste an hour and a half in a, in a boring lecture. Right. But when you're young, you don't know, you don't know what you're going to do. So right. everything is like a, you know, a feast, a movable feast. To you you right. know what I mean? Right. It's a smorgasbord. And that's, you know, and that goes back to, you know, I heard you on Tom Wood's show talking about college and should we send our kids to college? And it's right for some, but not everyone. And uh, I, I'm hopeful that technology is going to create many more opportunities for kids for whom college isn't the right path or at least not the right path right when they're out of high school. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we do what we can do. You know, you have, you, you speak in the circles you speak in. I have this podcast. I talk to people that are receptive. I don't hit people over the head because it's, you find out very quickly when you try to persuade people about libertarianism that some people are receptive and the majority aren't. And if someone gives you a sign that they will at least discuss something, then that's welcome. If they don't, I just move on. I don't spend my time. I'm sure you're the same way. And most of us, you know, figure that out early on as libertarians in in trying to be persuasive. But I think we have to keep up the battle in, in the various ways that we can do so, so that we don't just see a world where 40 or 50 percent of the college students uncritically accept the claims that uh, what's her face Cortez is uh, is promoting, you know. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think you just said something that reminded me of uh, something I read long ago by uh, uh, both Leonard Reed and Albert J. Nock, and it was it's a and I wrote a, a blog post on this just to collect it, but it's about this idea of the power of attraction, mm. and the idea is that. Um, Instead of going out and trying to just browbeat people with your ideas, right? Right. Um, you, you just become a successful person in your own life. Like handle right. your handle your marriage, handle your kids, handle your finances, handle your career, right. handle your manners, handle your life in a way that makes people notice you. Like, oh, this guy's got his stuff together. Right. And then 
and then they will come to you for advice or they right. or, or, or if they ask you a question on something incidental and political they're going to put more weight on what you say because you have your stuff together and they don't think you're just right um uh a screw up you know who just is trying to make it up by by browbeating people on his pet theory or whatever. Right. Um, so it's called the power of attraction, and I think there's something to that, right? Get your mm-hmm. house, and and there's something to that in practical life and in philosophy about, um, you know, when you're on an airplane, they say if there's a problem, put your air mask on you, then the kid. I mean, right? Or or or, or, or if you're going to give people advice on financial stuff, have your own house in order first. Sure. Um, so it's kind of that same idea. So I think that the primary duty of any person, especially someone who wants to make a difference, is um, get your house in order first, and then people will come to you. Right? Mm-hmm. Get your ideas solid, uh, firmly, firmly firmed up. Know what you're saying. Right? Speak right. cautiously. I mean, I don't right. follow this mm-hmm. advice all the time, but it seems to make sense to me. Right? Oh yeah, Doug Casey is a strong proponent of that. He's a multimillionaire and an anarcho-capitalist, and, and and can speak about that. I think he says he lives half his year in Argentina and the other half the year in Aspen, Colorado, where he's surrounded by leftists. And he says, you know, I go to parties, and he goes, I'll discuss anything, but I won't try to argue with anybody. And he says, I don't get invited back to parties, but guess what? I don't care. I don't need them. I'm wealthy enough. And if we as a group, I think that's great. If we as a group would become far more wealthy, I think, I think we would have far more persuasive ability. To me, that's kind of sad that that's what it takes. But that I think you're right. I think that's just human nature. They're going to listen to people who have been, in their eyes, successful, as opposed to somebody who's simply logically consistent. Yeah, and then there are some that can do do it just based on that alone. So yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's we have we are a bit, we're in a big world. There's seven yeah. billion people and there's right. lots of ways to do it. So that's right. a good thing, I think. I do too. Well Stefan, I really appreciate your time. This has been great. I appreciate you revealing about your uh your upbringing and at least with respect to your schooling and and how you sort of got into the libertarian and your your views on law school and the state and so forth. Uh I think this is great. Uh, so again, I appreciate your time very much, and uh, we'll speak again. I'm sure uh, you know at some point we'll meet each other. And uh, in fact, at one point I, we were talking about you coming out here. I, I ha- actually had this idea. I'll go ahead and say it before we wrap up. I think it'd be cool if you'd come out here for whatever reason, and you and I could go and figure out where uh, Murray Rothbard and Hans Hopi had their offices and what legacy or what remnants of their having been professors here, if any exist, uh, you would be the one person I know that would be interested in figuring that out. So are you, are you in uh, Las Vegas? Yes. Well, I, I've yet to make it out there. I've got several good buddies out there and it's, it's on my list. So um, you let me know um, when you're going to come and, and we'll do it. Sounds great. Thank you very much. This is the end of the Peter Mac Show, but I appreciate your listening, and thank you again to Stefan Kinsella. Where can people read more, before we sign off, where can people read more about your ideas and, and uh, your writings? Uh, just go to stephankinsella.com. Well, that's easy enough, Stefan Kinsella. Let me, let me spell it out. Stefan, S-T-E-P-H-A-N, and the last name Kinsella, also pretty phonetic, K-I-N-S-E-L-L, K-I-N-S-E-L-L. A. Ah, uh, hey. <laughs>
I'm going to spell something. I should spell it right, shouldn't I? K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A. Sorry. Okay. Okay, Stefan. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye-bye.